Let's have a word in prayer, and then we will open our words. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Father, we're thankful. Father, we're thankful for your redemption, for your work on the cross. Father, we're thankful that you not only have saved us, redeemed us, and given us life here, but you've given us a community to live in, to dwell in, and that you've called us to be a part of. Father, we're thankful for your word that you have given that still speaks. Father, we can open it up 2,000 years after it was written, Lord, and it can speak something to us. We're thankful for that, God, that you still speak and that you're still here. And so we pray as we open your word this morning, you would let it do its work, that your Holy Spirit would let it speak to our hearts and move in the way that it needs to. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about being united for the gospel and being united together on the same common front. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, and I'm calling it unity in, uh, in community, in our church body, and unity together. If you've ever been a part of a team, or if you've ever, you know, played any sports where you're part of a soccer team, football team, basketball team, or if you've ever been in a play, or a musical, or in the band's, you know that unity is something that you might not think of necessarily, but it's important. Um, one player doing something out of line can mess it up for the entire team. If you've ever been to an elementary band concert, one person playing off-key can ruin a whole concert for those playing on-key. Maybe it's happened to you at your job or at work, you know, you're working towards a goal or an object or something together as a team or a unit with your coworkers, and it just takes one grumpy employee, one disgruntled employee, one frustrated employee to very easily break unity and cause frustration, division, and conflict. And so, Paul was writing to the church here because he has a desire for them as a body, as a whole. One thing that I didn't share last week was that Paul, in ten times in the book of Philippians, said, you all, and speaking of you all, he's referring to the church as a whole, at large, everyone that comprised the church, and he was trying to emphasize and get across to them as a, not only as individuals and speaking to them as individuals, but as a church body. And so unity was something that was important to Paul and something that he desired to see in the church community. And unity is not just something that comes easily. I'll have to admit, it was not one of my favorite things. There was, um, it used to be on a prayer card every time that someone handed it in, they would write that one from the Psalms, you know, blessed are those brothers who dwell in unity. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like, there's more important things to pray for, you know. Um, I never found that much value in unity until thinking about it, dwelling upon it, and reading this, that um, unity just doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come as the common thing. You ever work in a team or you have an idea and you sit down with five others and they all have four different ideas and so trying to come to one cohesive thought and the same thought is challenging because you have your ideas, you have your ways that you would do it and you have your approach and you wanted to see it done that way and they're all coming at the same angle from other ways. If you've never experienced how hard unity can be, I welcome you to my house at five o'clock when we're all trying to decide what to eat for dinner and everyone is not on the same page. When you have a four-year-old that wants one thing, a six-year-old that wants another, and a three-year-old that, or two-year-old that chooses otherwise, all right? It just doesn't come naturally. They all have what they want to eat, what we want to eat, and it can be a point of conflict. And so unity matters because as a church, as a whole, as a large, we are to be working together as a cohesive unit, as a community, dwelling and living together. One thing that's not an option for a Christian is to live outside of community. 
Um, you were saved, you were redeemed, and then you were called to live with others. I know that many of us can be introverts or we can like to be isolated and by ourselves, but that doesn't change the fact that God has called you to be a part of community. Hebrews 10.25 tells us, do not forsake the meeting together of the brethren, that you're called to meet and to dwell and to live in community. It's one of the ways that God advances his gospel as a whole corporately is through the context of church and community. And so it's important for us because just like you may have experienced at work, just maybe you experienced in your own family or on a sports team or a part of anything where you've had to work together, how one person can frustrate or foil or mess up plans, so too can we if we get to dwelling on our problems and dwelling on how we want to see it and dwelling on our issues. And what we do not do then is to dwell together in unity. So Paul starts in Philippians, and we're going to go through the first 11 verses. I really wanted to read the whole chapter, but then I thought if I were sitting there, I would not want someone to read the whole chapter, so I would not put you through the torture that I wouldn't want to endure myself. So we'll just stick with the first 11 verses, taking them uh, one at a time here. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, or if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And when you read that, I kind of get the impression, like Paul saying, you know, if you have any encouragement from the gospel, if you've been united with Christ, if you know Christ, if Christ is living in you, and if you have any comfort, if any love, so it's kind of like me to the father that's like sitting there, and it's like, you know, son, if you find any value in that car that I pay for and that car insurance that I provide and the TV um, that you get to watch and the cell phone in your hand, um, please go get me an iced tea from the fridge, right? <laughs> it sounds like that or reads like that almost at first that Paul's saying, you know, it's almost rhetorical in a sense, right? Because what we gain and what we get in Christ, in our union with Christ, in our being a co-heir with Christ, is that we are comforted in his love. We do share together in his spirit, and we do know that he has been tender and compassionate to us. And so Paul's writing and saying, if you value any of that, right, and now that Christ is living in you and you're walking with him, Paul says this, then make my joy complete by what? Right, so Paul's writing here and says, you want to make my joy complete? Remember, these people were concerned. He's in prison, he's behind bars, and they're worried about him. They're fearful of what might happen to him. And Paul says, if you want to make me happy, if you want to make my joy complete, if you want to do something for me, it's not send me more money, not go petition the Roman government for my freedom. It's this. If you want to make my joy complete, if you want to do anything on my behalf, if you want to do anything for my sake, Paul writes, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 23 times that word like-minded is used in the New Testament. 10 times it's written here in the book of Philippians. And Paul's saying, you got to have a one, one mind, a oneness about you, that you have to be on the same wavelength, the same page, the same chapter together, being of one mind, having the same love, being of one spirit. Often when we hear that, we think that maybe being like-minded or having one mind means that we all have to agree. Um, that certainly isn't the case, um, that we're not all ideally, ideally, that would be wonderful, 
But it means that even in our disagreements and even in the things that we may see differently or even in our perspectives, which may be opposite of someone else's, that we have to have the same mind, the same likeness, being in one spirit. Small example, um, silly example, maybe you're on a soccer team and you were like me and you play defense. And so you think that the most valuable and the most important thing on the soccer field is defense, you know? Defense wins championships, right? Uh, but maybe someone out there is a striker and they're like, well, you can't win any soccer games if you don't score a goal. Um, and you know, so if you don't have offense and you don't score any goals, you can't win any games. The best you can do is hope for a zero-zero tie. And so there might be a disagreement between the offense and the defense about which one's more valuable, which one's more important, or which one is better or more needed. But here's the thing, when they get on the soccer field, they need the defense to do their job and the offense needs to do their job and they need to have this like-minded that they're in the game to win the game and to compete together as a team. And so we're here called as a church and as a body to be like-minded, not that we all have to agree, not that we all have to see eye to eye, but to be working for the same common purpose and the same common goal and working together in like-mindedness. So what, Paul? What is this like-mindedness? What does this look like? What is this mindset that Paul is wishing for us to adopt to adopt and be like-minded about. And we see it in verse 3 and 4. And I'll have to admit, there are verses that I didn't want to read, and after I read them to you, you're probably like, ooh, I don't want to hear that. Because it says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Now, that's like, ouch, you know? We used to have a a teacher at Elam that would be like, yeah, I wish I'd never read that, you know, because now I have to live by it, now I have to abide by it, now I have to walk that out. And that verse right there might be one of the most challenging, hardest verses for me to just actually flesh out and to walk out, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition, right? Now, I know that this is Delaware, and there's more literal, just straight people here, so I've got to explain that to you, right? People are like, well, am I not allowed to eat? You know, because that's selfish, and that's in my stomach. No, Paul's talking about the context of community here, right? And he's saying when you're living in this church body and you're dwelling here together, that your motives and your actions and the things that you do are not to be based out of selfish ambition. You're not to prop yourself up. You're not to lift yourself up. You're not to live for the glory of yourself. You're not to do things that would just benefit you, And if I'm honest, I'll just be honest about myself. I don't know about you, but that is a fight every day and might be the hardest fight that I had to fight because my inclinations and my desires are to protect me, to look out for me, to do what's right for me, to do what's right by me. What does it cost me? What am I going to gain? What am I going to get out of it? What is the cost? What is the risk, you know? And it usually is a challenge um, because our nature and our sin nature lives and dwells within us and it seeks to protect and what is good for us. It is selfish. It says, rather in humility, and you have to remember in Roman culture, if you looked on, uh, if you looked at the word humility, they didn't value the word humility. Humility was an attribute of a slave or a poor person, and so it wasn't like it was looked on with respect and dignity and say, oh, how humble that person is. It was just a position that you had to take because you had no other option because you basically were humiliated. And so when Paul writes to them and says, you know what, you're not to do anything out of selfish ambition, but rather you were to have humility, it's a stark contrast to the society that he's writing in, but I would have to think that it's not too much different than the world in which we live in. I thought about it this morning, I was like, we have a cell phone that it wasn't just good enough to have a camera on the back, they had to put a camera on the front so that we could take pictures of ourselves. (laughs) 
We have social media outlets which are primarily focused on putting pictures of ourselves to obtain likes, to obtain status and affection and love so that we can proclaim ourselves, like me, you know? We ask questions like, is this going to eat into my time? Is this going to cost me my finances? What am I required to sacrifice? Will this fit into my schedule? Does it align with what I want to do? Very easily, the selfishness comes out, and it's not that hard to see. Theologians like to argue, um, what is the root of all sin? Is it pride? Is it greed? Is it unbelief? I'm not going to make a substantial theological argument, but I will make my appeal, and my thing is that even beyond some of that is this nature of selfishness. When you look at Adam and Eve, what did they do? They grasped, they reached, they wanted to obtain something that wasn't rightfully theirs to obtain. They wanted to be like God because it, wanted to be, it was about them and what they could achieve and what they could attain and what they thought they were gaining. And so instead of valuing God, instead of worshiping God, instead of walking with him in the manner in which he created them, they tried to reach and take something that wasn't meant for them. You look further in the book of Judges, what does it say? Everyone did what was right in their what was the downfall when you did what they wanted to do, when they imposed their will, what they saw as fit? Even the rich young ruler, when Jesus said, you got to go and sell everything, maybe consumed by greed, but also a little bit of selfishness, wanting to hold on to his possessions, wanting to hold on to what he had worked for and what he had, and wanting to keep it for himself instead of giving it up to obtain the kingdom of God. Romans 1.25 summarizes it for us. It says, they exchange the truth about God, right? This is what sin does. Sin exchanges the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Selfishness to find right there is that we get caught up in the external and the created things and how they can serve us and how much money I can have and what car can I drive and how can I have this and how does it affect me? And we start to worship and serve these things because we make it about us instead of about him. Selfishness has the ability and the power to destroy many things. How many relationships are ruined because a spouse or a friend or a family member is self-consumed, can't admit a wrong, or commits an act to fulfill a personal desire on how it would benefit them. Listen, it's hard even in the little things of life. At the Diffender for House, we like Oreos, right? And so you're sitting down at Netflix tonight, or watching, you know, the kids are in bed, and it's finally 9 o'clock, and you get a little bit of time to yourself, and you're like, you know what, there's some Oreos on the counter. I'm going to sit down, watch some Netflix, and we're going to just have some Oreos and some milk, and it's just going to be a nice little evening. And so you get to the pack of Oreos, and my normal squeeze is six. Six Oreos and a cup of milk, that's how I usually go. I got it down. Um, I don't feel like that's too many. Um, you know, you know, five is just not enough, and I always want to go back. So it's like I take six, right? And so I open the pack of Oreos, and there's six Oreos left. It's like, hmm. Well, yeah, I got to share, right? You know, do I want to share? No. And the personal struggle, even in as a little thing like that, it comes across like, well, I can eat the six Oreos. You know, maybe Mel can find another snack. Or maybe, Mel, or maybe Mel ate some Oreos earlier in the day and these six are left for me, right? And if you're being honest, these are those little things where you want to be selfish, you want to take advantage for yourself and what you want. And I want the six Oreos. I don't want to take just three. 
And it runs in every fabric of our life where we want to do and protect and look out for ourselves and how it would benefit us. And I'm embarrassed to admit sometimes any of these little decisions, how long it would take me to make the right decision or to lay down what I want. Not like I need six Oreos. (laughs) So as one person said it and put the thought this way, that the antidote to selfishness Right? If you want to put a cure to it, is this, is what Paul put in the following sentence is this. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. And so now Paul is starting to step on my toes a little bit and he's starting to push it a little bit too far because now I can't do anything out of selfish ambition, right? Or vain conceit. But I want to talk real quick about vain conceit because vain conceit means this it means empty glory. It means empty glory. To best summarize it, it reminds me when Jesus is telling the story about the man that gained the whole world, right? You can gain the status, all the wealth, all the relationships, all the power that you ever want, right? And what does he say? What does it gain a man to gain the whole world but to lose your soul, right? That's what empty glory is, is you can achieve all the worldly status and all the worldly power and all the worldly positions that you want, but in the end, if you do it for the sake of losing your soul, it's just empty glory, And so now I have to consider others above myself. Now I have to look to the value of others and I have to recognize others also. And then he goes, I think, one step farther where he almost gets into this like utopian, dream, hippie type world where it's like, come on, Paul, you can't really be serious. You can't really expect this. This is just, this is fantasy, God, that you would ever expect this. Because what does he say in verse four? Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. What? So I'm not to look after my own interests. I'm not to take care of myself. And that goes against every fabric of our society, right? I look out for me. I take care of me. I provide for me. And I don't need anyone else. And, I, and we pride ourselves on not being dependent upon anyone else but ourselves. And some of us even have a Bible verse in the Psalms that quote it and says, it's better to trust in God than to trust in man. Misapplication when you use it in that context. Because like I said, God has called you to dwell and to live in community. And one of the way that he meets your needs and one of the way that he provides for you and one of the way that he has given provision it's through the gifts, talents, and the abilities of those sitting right here in this room with you. Amen. And so I'm not to look after my own interests, but to look after the interests of others. Is that when I'm seeking to bless others, when I'm seeking to use my gifts for the benefit of others, and then in the process I'm supposed to trust that those in here are looking after my interests. It's like, all right, Paul, that's, that's a little out there. That's an ideal. Maybe I'll aim for it. Um, but it's probably the best, actually, um, best way I can describe it is in the context of marriage. And the best marriage advice that I'd ever given, I had ever been given, and that wasn't even um, directed at me. I was watching another, my mentor, perform a wedding for his son and daughter. And in the context of his sermon to them, he said this. He says, marriage is not about your own happiness, right? Marriage is asking the question, can I spend the rest of my life making fill in the blank, that person happy? Can I, when I look at that person, do I see their dreams and their goals and their visions and do I want to spend the rest of my life seeing that come to pass and then trusting that my spouse feels the same about me? And Paul's using it here in that sense of, can I look at the dreams and the values and the visions and the gifts and the talents of this church body and do I want to see them come to fruition and then believing that they want the same for me? And if I'm being honest, if I were to close the book right now and we were to end the sermon right now, 
I don't know that we would have any power or any weight or anything to actually make those things come true. They would be good things to say. They would be good things to aim for and a good goal to try to reach. But there's, if we're being honest, that our selfish nature and our desires and our wishes don't operate in that. And so Paul goes on in the next five verses to um, pull what I like to call as a trump card. Our family, I don't know if this must be a Pennsylvania game because I don't know if any of you know it. You ever played the game of Rook? Anyone? All right, a few. All right. So the game of Rook, um, it's just a simple card game, but in the card, in the game, there's a little just uh, bird. I can't even think what it is at the moment. Um, And the bird is on there, and if the bird is played, it is the trump card, meaning that the round is over, the hand is over. That card, if you lay it, means that you win all of the cards on the table. And so when you play it, you trump everything else that's out there. And so, in a sense, the next five verses are Paul's kind of trump card of, you know what? I do expect that you would do nothing out of selfish ambition. I do expect that you would take an attitude of humility. And I do expect that you would consider and value others above yourself. But here's how to pull it off. Here's how to make it happen. Verse 5. In your relation, I'm reading from the NIV. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, right? There's the key. There's the thing that we, that's the meat of today's sermon, right? That in your relationships with one another, in your life, in your attitudes, and in your mind, that you are to have this, the mindset of Christ, that you are called to have the mind of Christ, the oneness with Christ, and to share in that together. And it says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Another version says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be seized or something to be taken hold of. Colossians 1 says this, talking about Jesus and making him supreme above all, it says, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is Jesus who every principality, power, everything that was created was created through him, and he holds it all together, right? Right? And so we're talking about his position and where he is, that he is ruling and reigning in heaven, seated beside the Father and all of his glory and all of the riches, right? And everything else is under him. And it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. It didn't mean that he was not equally, um, he was not, they didn't have different levels of equality. It wasn't that he was beneath the Father or beneath the Holy Spirit. It just meant that he had a role and he had a, job and what to do, and he knew what was expected of him. And so just like Adam and Eve grasped for something that wasn't theirs, Jesus didn't lay hold. He didn't seize. He didn't. And he submitted himself to the Father's plan. And we go on in verse 7. It says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This deity, this royalty, this glorious king took on human flesh. Why? He was considering others. He was humbling himself. His version of ruling and reigning 
wasn't a big stick in a heavy hand. It wasn't some dictatorship, it wasn't in, but it was in the form of a servant. That he was made in our likeness. English does a very bad job here of, you know, we hear likeness and we think, well, that's not really the real thing. It's just a picture of it or it's just a shadow of it. Um, but this was fully God, fully man. As we'll see in verse 8, it says one word that uses the form. And form in the Greek literally means just an outward expression of an inner being, right? And so Jesus took the form of man. He was man and was God. And he left heaven for us. This one whom we are all to worship, to adore, the one through whom holds all things together, who has created all things. The one who John said, I am not even worthy untie your sandal has now taken on the form of a servant who has now walked into our ugliness and our pain and into our world and came as a man to live and to dwell with us and so we'll continue on in verse 8 and being found in the appearance of man he humbled himself uh oh right in verse 4 he calls us or verse 3 he calls us to humility rather in humility we are to demonstrate humility and now he's showing us here right that Jesus being found in the appearance of man what he walked out what he demonstrated was that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross I found a quote this week that says this is that that even death by a cross is an important part it says this the keynote of this manner of execution is shame the victim was publicly paraded through the streets, inviting ridicule from bystanders, completely stripped and fastened by ropes or nails, a completely defenseless posture in, few, in full view until death. Bodies of the crucified were left exposed to be eaten by birds or animals. Death by crucifixion was considered to deprive the victim of all honor and submerge him in shame. Why? For your redemption, for your victory, for your light. His death reminds, of, reminds you of your purpose, of your seat at the table, to ensure the forgiveness of your sins, to remind you that you belong to the Creator. He did it for your benefit so you could know the God that you were made to worship. He took on your shame. That was the death that we deserved and he was publicly humiliated for our sake. I myself am one that sometimes very, can quickly dismiss attributes such as humility and meekness as weakness or fear or not being tough. But to me, it's the most courageous and toughest thing that ever, Jesus ever did. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and didn't open his mouth. Listen, when I'm innocent and I'm falsely accused, I'm gonna let you know, right? I ain't taking the fall for someone else. I do enough stuff on my own, I ain't about to take other people's stuff, and I'll very quickly be like, no, that was them, right? I had to love it. Um, the other day there was a, toothpaste cap in the uh, 
in the sink. It had fallen down the drain. And so Mel's like, oh, you dropped, the, you dropped the cap down the drain again? I said, whoa, that wasn't me, right? That wasn't me. I didn't do that. Come on, you know? Lou walks in. She's like, oh, that was me. You know, oh, all right. Um, Jesus didn't proclaim his innocence. He didn't have a legion of angels come rescue him. He didn't forcefully attack the false accusers. But for your sake, so we could go free for our benefit. He was obedient for the sake of our redemption. Yet how often we treat sin casually and ambiguous like it costs nothing, like it's okay. But we would do well to remember the price that was paid and what it was done and the weight that he bore for our sake so that we would embrace the cross and we would remember. What's it say in verse 1? It says, if you have any comfort from his love, if any tenderness and compassion, would we remember that? We would remember the comfort that we gain and we get from him and how tender and how compassionate he is towards us and the grace that he so freely demonstrates and gives to us. And in doing so, these four verses here make it possible for those first four, four, first four verses to come to fruition, right? Now that's the trump card. Why? It's because Jesus lived and walked and dwelt on this earth as a man and walked in innocence and died for my sins, considering me, humbling himself, taking my position, taking my place, putting me and what I, above others, above his needs and above his wishes. He went to the cross and what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so with that in mind, and considering that, when I look to those around me, and when I consider them, and when I value them, and when I look at them with tenderness and compassion, when I forgive them of their sins, Christ's model was not one of power and of reign, but it was through the power came, through obedience, through submission, through humility, right? You want power in your life? We all want the power of God, right? We want the dunamis power. Where's the power come from? Through humility, through a position of submission and obedience to the Father, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for that is the power of salvation. I'm not ashamed of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because that's where the power is. You want power in your life? Embrace the gospel. Embrace who he is. Embrace Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and take an attitude of humility before him and of submission to him. Why? Because verses 9 and 11 say, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the God the Father. Is that Jesus is now ruling and reigning at the right hand and whether in this life or the next, you will acknowledge and you will bow down and you will worship the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But as the song says, come, now is the time to worship. Now is the time to give him praise because one day every tongue will confess and one day every knee will bow. But still the greatest treasure remains for what? Those who embrace it now. So in conclusion, Paul not only gives the example of Jesus, right, as the ultimate example, but he also drives it home a little bit further to the people and someone that is 
familiar to them. And he goes in verse 25, and we'll skip down, and says this. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. I was in school and I had a class and we were working through this book and one of the things was to journal that week about that portion of scripture about the end right there. And the question that was asked of me was this, is what have I ever given that cost me something? And when you ask that question and you start to think of the answers, it's like, well, I did this. And I was like, that really didn't cost me anything, you know? You know, when's the last time that I set something aside that, you know, cost me something in my pocket or cost me maybe some of my time or maybe, you know, I had to sacrifice or give up? And I was like, wow. Epaphroditus was being blessed and he was being honored. Why? Because he risked his life and he gave something on his behalf for the sake of the work of Christ. Not saying that we all need to head out now and be mercenaries and head, you know, and to give our lives for the sake, but I would ask you that question. Considering the cost that Christ did, considering the price that he paid, considering what he did, what maybe is he calling us to give up, to sacrifice for the benefit of others? Where maybe do I have a little extra that I can give and to bless, and it might cost me, you know? It might cost me the vacation or the next pair of shoes that I want to buy but I'm going to take a position of valuing them above myself. Maybe it's simply you need to sacrifice or lay down your embarrassment or your pride or your ego because your concern or your worry is, well, how will they think of me or what would they think or what's my image going to be like or how will they respond and we won't reach out or we won't try to bless someone because we're so consumed with ourselves and how it, what it might do to us that it's like, I won't reach out with the good news and I won't share the gospel or I won't pray for them or I won't seek them because I have something to lose but would I value them and would I consider their soul and their worth worth the cost for the sake of the gospel? I don't know what the resource is. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your money. You might do something that's never going to get you anything in return. What does Luke 6.35 say? But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Why? Because this is your reward. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. You know what your reward is? You get him. You get to be his son. You get to be his daughter. And you get the opportunity to demonstrate his love to those around. And so as Brother Mike and the team comes to lead us in communion, May we enter communion with an attitude and a heart that says, I want to commune with the one as we break the bread.
and we drink the cup and we remember that the blood is poured out and we remember that his blood speaks a better word over us and that he was broken for our transgressions and our pain. And so as we partake in communion, would we remember the fellowship and would we be a community that embraces the gospel and that values those around us?